0: Welcome to The Humanist Report, I'm Mike Figueredo. On today's episode, we've got a lot to go over. I'm going to be covering the GOP debate, of course, because who wouldn't cover that? It's hilarious. Um, I'm also going to be discussing a little bit of other stories, such as the DNC and their exclusivity clause, which nobody knows about, but it's something that's going to harm Bernie Sanders in the end. So I'm going to be shedding some light on that, and I'm also going to get to a bunch of other topics, um, such as Charles Koch as well as uh, nuclear weapons in the world. We're gonna talk about that today. So it's gonna be a busy episode, stay tuned. So at WeTheVisionary on Twitter, which is one of my viewers, well he sent me a link to a sketchy plan by the Democratic National Convention to really hurt Bernie Sanders' campaign. Now I'm gonna explain to you what that is. So the DNC is in control of the debates for the 2016 election for the Democratic Party, and they're only going to be sanctioning six debates. Now, look, it's also the case that they only sanctioned this many debates in 2004 and 2008 as well, but this time they've implemented a really sketchy rule called the Exclusivity Clause, wherein if candidates decide that they want to go to a debate that's not sanctioned by the DNC, so if they want to go over to MSNBC and participate in a debate, well then they get booted from future DNC debates. Now, this is a plan that will directly harm Bernie Sanders because what's his biggest challenge right now? its name recognition. So let me go through and um, explain to you a little bit about the exclusivity clause and what it means. So Time explains that an aide to one Democratic 2016 aspirant said they were taken aback by the exclusivity clause. In the discussions that the DNC had with potential 2016 candidates, they explicitly said there would be no exclusivity clause and it was a shock to see that they included one in their press release today, the aide said. It was all an elaborate game where everything was worked out in advance with the Clinton people, the aide alleged. I've been involved in debate negotiations for various campaigns for nearly 20 years, and they are almost always have some people who want more and some people who want fewer. So now, right after the DNC announced these new rules, Hillary Clinton tweeted this. She says, while GOP debates the same failed policies, Democrats will debate how to help families get ahead, looking forward to a real conversation. Hmm, so it seems as though... The DNC may be colluding with the Clintons on this, and that's problematic if so. Now, look, we don't have that much evidence. We can't necessarily just base it off of this one aide, but more than likely, she's going to want this, and she's going to be in favor of this, because Hillary Clinton already has name recognition. See, the problem is that the more that Hillary Clinton speaks, the more that her likability goes down. Now, the more that Bernie Sanders speaks, the more that his likability goes up, see, She may be leading in national polls and still be leading by a very short lead um, in uh, New Hampshire and in Iowa. But Bernie Sanders is beating her when it comes to net likability, which is a good thing for him and a bad thing for Hillary Clinton. So if he only has six debates to get his points across, that could be detrimental to his campaign. So that's why this exclusivity clause is very, very problematic. And I think it's quite authoritarian of the party to do that. We all know that Hillary Clinton isn't principled. So when they ask these types of questions about the Keystone XL Pipeline, um, what do you think should be the minimum wage? Well, Bernie Sanders is going to say everything that the American people want to hear because he believes them. So he's going to say, yeah, I'm in favor of a $15 minimum wage. I'm in favor of ending corporate welfare. I'm in favor of vetoing the Keystone XL Pipeline if elected president. He's going to say that he's in favor of breaking up the big banks. Now, Hillary Clinton can't say these things because she has her hands in the pockets of many different donors. So she can't tell us that she wants to break up the big banks. She can't tell us that she wants a $15 minimum wage because her donors would not like that. And see, another problem for Hillary Clinton is that the Democratic base is much smarter than the Republican base. So they're going to see through Hillary Clinton easily when she dodges questions or when she tries to use doublespeak. answer in a way that's really disingenuous so the debates in effect are not going to be conducive to hillary clinton rising in the polls now furthermore the dnc doesn't want anti-establishment candidates such as bernie sanders coming in and threatening the status quo so they're in effect trying to strangle his campaign by doing this and it's just horrible it's absolutely terrible this is going to hurt him and we've got to do something about it the problem is that There's not much pressure on the DNC to change this because nobody's talking about it. No mainstream media outlet has mentioned it. Even um, independent sources such as the Young Turks, I haven't seen them post videos about this. I could be wrong, but I haven't seen them mention this topic. And it's something that is very, very urgent because if we want Bernie Sanders to get that Democratic nomination, we've got to do something and we've got to do something very, very fast. So here's what we need to do as Bernie Sanders supporters. We need to tweet at the DNC, and their Twitter handle is the Democrats. It's the official uh, Twitter of the Democratic Party. And we need to tell them to end the exclusivity clause because it's bad. Now, look, we've got to help spread the word fast. Bernie's campaign really depends on this because if he only has six debates, that's going to be a huge, huge problem because, I mean, if he's going to get his message out there, he needs to talk as much as possible because, as I said, the more he opens his mouth, The better off he's going to be so this is going to be really strangling his campaign and that's not okay so look we've got to do something about it tweet to the dnc share this video um share the article that i have in the description box from time we've got to get the word out about this because this is something that is potentially detrimental to his campaign according to a new wmur slash university of new hampshire poll bernie sanders is currently within a statistical tie with Hillary Clinton. So Clinton is polling at 42 percentage points in New Hampshire, while Bernie is sitting at 36%. So this is six points, which is the margin of error. So it's a a statistical tie, excuse me. So now Bernie is ahead of Clinton when it comes to likability, and is just two percentage points below Hillary when it comes to net electability. Clinton is at 32%, while Sanders is at 30%. He is closing the gap. This is very evident. And it's not just this poll that shows it. There's many, many other polls that show that he's coming for Clinton and he's coming fast. Now, clearly, he's not guaranteed to win. This is evident, right? But here's what we can do as Bernie Sanders supporters because I think that a lot of us We see all this momentum that he's gained and we kind of sit back and think, look, he's got this. But we can't get that mindset yet and we can't be naive because that could potentially hurt his campaign. There's ways that we can support him just as ordinary people. There's ways that we can do things to help benefit his campaign. So I have some here. So first and foremost, we can spread the word on social media. If you tweet about Bernie Sanders, if you share articles talking about Bernie Sanders' policy positions, if you share videos talking about Bernie Sanders' policy positions, that could absolutely benefit his campaign. I've done a bunch of videos where I actually talk about how his positions are right in line with the American people's, and I went over all of the actual polls on each of the issues. Now, you don't even have to share my videos. You can share the Young Turks, Kyle Kulinski, David Pakman, anyone who's willing to talk about Bernie Sanders. I think that that's good. So share it. Don't be afraid to post politics on Facebook or Twitter. Now, also, probably the biggest way that we can help him is to donate to his campaign. Now, you don't have to just send him a 5 or $10 donation. You could even purchase a Bernie Sanders t-shirt. Just go to BernieSanders.com, and he has bumper stickers, mugs, t-shirts. But here's one thing that I want to warn people about. Now, I've tweeted about this, too. Be wary of the shirts that you purchase because there's a lot of organizations that print t-shirts that are making Bernie Sanders shirts. And although they look awesome, if you spend your money on that, well, you're not helping Bernie Sanders directly. Now, that's fine if you just want to do it for a fashion statement, to make a political statement. But I mean, if you want to purchase um, stuff from Bernie Sanders that you can wear, well, then you should buy from BernieSanders.com because that actually counts towards his campaign. his campaign donation, in effect. So buy from BernieSanders.com if you can. Now, actually... If you live in these really key primary states, such as Iowa, New Hampshire, then you need to vote or caucus for him. That's a given. That's a given. But I mean, all of us can't do that. But the most that we can do as Bernie Sanders supporters is do everything we can to get the word out because he needs help. He is the underdog of this campaign. And just because he's uh, gaining momentum, just because he's closing the gap, well, it's not over yet. We've got a lot of work to do. And I really want to stress that so that way my viewers don't kind of kind of sit back and think, you know what? He can do this on his own because he can't. This is a grassroots effort it's not just about bernie sanders it's about all of us and we really need to pitch in and help as much as we can in an interview with univision and fusion when asked whether or not bernie sanders thought he could beat hillary clinton he responded by saying there's no question that i can beat her now he also says quote we're electable we can win this thing and when it comes to the republicans bernie also says one-on-one against the republican candidates we can win Now look, Bernie Sanders is right. According to a CNN poll that was released just last week, he's ahead of a lot of major Republican candidates such as uh, Jeb Bush, Scott Walker, Donald Trump. He's basically in a statistical tie with Jeb Bush to be fair, but... I don't think that's gonna last very long now bernie sanders also explains how his campaign has gained so much momentum he says quote every day we are doing better and better we started off with a disadvantage not a whole lot of people knew who i was but every day i think there are more people who know who i am and what our program is as people hear that they're saying yeah that's the kind of program that we need so i agree with him i think that he can beat hillary clinton now Bernie Sanders supporters, we're not naive, okay? We know that this is going to be an uphill battle. I mean, Hillary Clinton is a political behemoth. It's going to take a lot of grassroots coordination. It's going to take a lot of us tweeting about him and uh, spreading the word to really help him and get his name out there because once people hear about him, I've said it a 100 times, they're going to know that he's a candidate that they want because his speeches really resonate with the American people. Now, I think that the Democratic establishment knows this, too, because I covered in another video that um, the DNC is trying to strangle Bernie Sanders' campaign by limiting the uh, debate from Democratic candidates to only six events, and they're also banning anyone from participating in a non-DNC-sanctioned event. So if Bernie Sanders wanted to get his name out more and go debate Martin O'Malley on MSNBC, well, guess what? He now gets booted from the DNC-sanctioned debates, which would harm him tremendously. So look, they know that as Bernie Sanders speaks, he's becoming more and more popular, and they really see a progressive grassroots movement bubbling up, and this really scares the establishment. So yeah, I do think Bernie Sanders can win and beat Hillary Clinton, but you've got to understand what he's up against. He's up against a lot. So to do that, we've got to help him. We've got to really make sure that we get the word out there. So this is great news that he's being confident, and I like that he's projecting this. Because as we've seen with the Donald Trump case, Americans really like someone who's confident. So if Bernie can tout all the policies that Americans want and be confident confident as well, dude, wash your hands with it. You're done. So during the GOP event last night, Bernie Sanders was live tweeting his reactions. And of course, they were glorious. So I'm going to go ahead and read those to you. So with respect to Scott Walker, now mind you, he's actually at mentioning them. In these tweets, too. So now to Scott Walker, he says, repeal Obamacare. Throw millions of more people off their health insurance. Great idea. (laughs) Um, Now to Jeb Bush, he says, talk about killing jobs. When your brother left office, we were hemorrhaging 800,000 jobs a month, and you want more of the same? Damn. Now to Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders says, did Donald Trump just support a national single-payer health system? Well, he was right on something. Hashtag debate with Bernie. Um, Now, another one, he says, at a time of massive inequality, does any Republican think the wealthy and large corporations should pay a nickel or more, more in taxes? That's a good question. I think that we all know the answer. It's no. Now, he also had this to say on Facebook once the debate was over. He says, the Republican debate is over. Not one word about income and wealth inequality, climate change, Citizens United, or student debt. That's why the Republicans are so out of touch with the American people. What I heard was more about tax breaks for the rich, more people losing health insurance, and more talk about war. This is not what we need. Slow clap. So look, man, Bernie Sanders is... He's not just my pick for the 2016 presidential campaign. He is my favorite politician ever. Because he doesn't act like a politician. He doesn't have these calculated responses. I mean, look, would Hillary Clinton do something like that? Do you think she would just write a tweet? to Scott Walker or Jeb Bush without actually having our whole team scrutinize it? Of course not. What you're seeing with Bernie Sanders is a genuine human being who is technically a politician, but he doesn't act like the slimy sleazeball politicians that we all are used to. So Bernie Sanders, keep it up. And look, I know that he doesn't like to engage in um, attacks on other people, but when he does, it's awesome. It's hilarious. And he's 100% right. So I think he should do it. At the GOP debate, Chris Christie and Rand Paul clashed when it came to the NSA's collection of data from citizens. Take a look.
1: We're going to switch topics now and talk a bit about terror and national security. Governor Christie, you have said that Senator Paul's opposition to the NSA's collection of phone records has made the United States weaker and more vulnerable, even going so far as to say that he should be called before Congress to answer for it if we should be hit by another terrorist attack. Do you really believe you can assign blame to Senator Paul just for opposing the bulk collection of people's phone records in the event of a terrorist attack?
2: Yes, I do. And I'll tell you why. Because I'm the only person on this stage who's actually filed applications under the Patriot Act, who have gone before the federal, uh, the, the Foreign Intelligence Service Court, who has prosecuted and investigated and jailed terrorists in this country after September 11th. I was appointed U.S. Attorney by President Bush on September 10th, 2001 and the world changed enormously the next day and it happened in my state. This is not theoretical to me. I went to the funerals. We lost friends of ours in the Trade Center that day. My own wife was two blocks from the Trade Center that day at her office having gone through it that morning. When you actually have to be responsible for doing this. You can do it, and we did it for seven years in my office, respecting civil liberties and protecting the homeland. And I will make no apologies ever for protecting the lives and the safety of the American people. We have to give more tools to our folks to be able to do that, not fewer, and then trust those people and oversee them to do it the right way. As president, that is exactly what I'll do.
3: Megan, may I respond? Go ahead, sir. I want to collect more records from terrorists, but less records from innocent Americans. The Fourth Amendment was what we fought the revolution over. John Adams said it was the spark that led to our war for independence. And I'm proud of standing for the Bill of Rights, and I will continue to stand for the Bill of Rights.
2: And and Megan, Megan, that's a that, you know, that's a completely ridiculous answer. I want to collect more records from terrorists, but less records from other people. How are you supposed to know, Megan? Use the Fourth Amendment. Supposed to, how are you supposed use the to No, amendment. I'll tell you how you look, Get a warrant. Let me tell you something. You Get a go judge to
1: sign when a you, warrant. Go ahead. You know, wait, wait, Governor question make your point.
2: Listen, Senator, you know, when you're sitting in a subcommittee just blowing hot air about this, you can say things like that. When you're responsible for protecting the lives of the American people, then what you need to do is, to make, sure, is to make sure that you Here's use the, problem, the system the Governor. way it's supposed Here's to work. The
3: problem. Governor, you fundamentally un- misunderstand the Bill of Rights. Every time you did a case, you got a warrant from a judge. I'm talking about searches without warrants, there is no indiscriminately of all Americans' records, and that's what I fought to end. I don't trust President Obama with our records. I know you gave him a big hug, and if you want to give him a big hug again, go right in.
2: And, and you know. You know, Senator Paul, Senator Paul, you know, the hugs that I remember are the hugs that I gave to the families who lost their people on September 11th. Those are the hugs I remember. And those had nothing to do and those had nothing to do with politics, unlike what you're doing by cutting speeches on the floor of the Senate, then putting them on the Internet within a half an hour to raise money for your campaign right. and while still putting our country at risk. All right. We there. Done. We have plenty more we want to get to.
0: So, the first thing I want to say is that Chris Christie is just insufferable. I mean, all he's doing is trying to be the hero. He's trying to be the good guy when we know that he's not. He's not the good guy. So, look, I disagree with Rand Paul on a ton of issues, but on certain issues, he's 100% right. And on this issue, he's 100% right. I mean, look, not only does he have an argument that's pragmatic... He has one that's constitutionally sound. When it comes to Chris Christie, he doesn't have a constitutional basis for his viewpoint on this matter. All he has is the emotional plea that he's trying to do. Well, look, I was the good guy, so you blame me for hugging Obama. Well, guess who I was hugging? I was hugging the victims. See, look, here's the deal. When you have an actual logical argument that's reasonable that's pragmatic you don't have to appeal to someone's emotions to get them to agree with you but when you do have to appeal to emotions and you don't have anything else well then clearly you're the one who's wrong and of course chris christie is wrong on this issue when it comes to the nsa's bulk collection of metadata look hands down rand paul's the best he's well at least one of the best he's been a champion for civil liberties and protecting the fourth amendment 100 percent of the time he's right there saying no we can't do this if you want to spy on americans that's fine get a warrant and then we could do it but you can't just sweepingly spy on everyone and collect all of our metadata because that's unconstitutional it's right there in the constitution it's right there in the bill of rights but chris christie doesn't get this or either he does get it and he's being disingenuous and he's just really trying to tug on the heartstrings of americans but that's not gonna work Americans don't like NSA spying. They may be apathetic to it, but if you do question them, they are going to come out against NSA spying because who wants to be spied on? Mike Huckabee called for a tax system wherein prostitutes and pimps would have to pay their fair share. Take a look.
4: Well, you ask about how we fund it. One of the reasons that social security is in so much trouble is the only funding stream comes from people who get a wage. The people who get wages is declining dramatically. Most of the income in this country is made by people at the top who get dividends and and uh, capital gains. The fair tax transforms the process by which we fund Social Security and Medicare because the money paid at consumption is paid by everybody including illegals, prostitutes, pimps, drug dealers, all the people that are freeloading off the system now. That's why it ought to be a transformed system.
0: So I want to pick out a little quote that he said. He says, quote, The fair tax transforms the process by which we fund Social Security and Medicare because the money paid at consumption is paid by everybody, including illegals, prostitutes, pimps, drug dealers, all the people that are freeloading off the system now. So first and foremost, let's dive into that statement what exactly is the fair tax that he's referring to? Well, in essence, it's a flat tax, but when he calls it a fair tax, that's actually a misnomer because as you'll see here in a minute, it's not fair at all. Um, So basically, I'll give you an example of that. We have the Herman Cain example where um, he proposed the 999 deal, which was a 9% tax on income, 9% tax on sales, and 9% tax on business revenue. Now, that may sound fair because... Everybody, no matter your income level, pays the same thing. But in effect, it's very problematic, and the New York Times explains why. A flat tax would reinforce the trends toward greater income inequality that have been seen over the last several decades. As documented by a recent Congressional Budget Office study, the top 1% of income recipients in the United States earned 275% more in 2007 than they did in 1979, adjusted for inflation a period when the earnings of middle-income households grew by less than 40%. A flat tax would increase inequality by substantially reducing rates on the most prosperous households while increasing them on low- and middle-income households. So basically, the flat tax, or the fair tax as Mike Huckabee wants to call it, it's just a big giveaway to the rich don't let the name fool you now it's really difficult to try to ascertain what he's trying to say because he only had 30 seconds to speak so we didn't actually have the opportunity to dive into the nuances of the flat tax or to dive into the details of it so i'm gonna try to extrapolate and explain to you what he's saying and why it's uh a problematic so what he's contending is that undocumented immigrants prostitutes, pimps, and drug dealers are currently freeloading off of our current social security system and not paying into the programs they already use. Well, Mike Huckabee, there's two problems with that specifically. First and foremost, undocumented immigrants are not eligible to receive food stamps or cash assistance, even though they pay billions of taxes each year. In 2012, it was found that they paid $11.8 billion in taxes, but yet, They're not eligible because of their citizenship status, of course. Now, also, undocumented immigrants are not eligible for Social Security. Now, this is complex because if you actually Google are undocumented immigrants eligible for Social Security... Probably the first 10 or so articles will confirm that they are, but that's actually not the case. The actual vote in question, which these articles will refer to, they'll frame it as a vote of whether or not illegal immigrants should be able to receive Social Security benefits. Now, the actual vote in question was about whether or not individuals that previously moved here illegally but have since become citizens should be given the Social Security that they already paid into while they weren't legal citizens. Again completely different. And yeah, they should be giving given what they were paid into. They're citizens now. Why not? And I even think that undocumented immigrants who are currently not citizens should be able to receive welfare assistance because as you see, seen, they paid $11.8 billion into the system. So why can't they get a little bit of help? But anyways, that's just me. So now the second problem um, with Micah Huckabee's assertion is that citizens should be able to freeload Because if they have to resort to prostitution, pimping, or drug dealing, uh, well, then clearly they need the welfare benefits more than everyone else. We need to give them health care. We need to give them education. We need to give them equal opportunity so that way they can lift themselves up out of these dark places so they don't have to resort to these types of jobs. Um, So what he's basically contending is that If we implement the flat tax and fund Social Security solely through sales tax, well, then individuals who make their money illegally off of of prostitution, off of drug dealing, well, they're inadvertently going to be paying through the system as well because, I mean, it doesn't matter where you get your money. I mean, if that's dirty money, if you're selling drugs, well, you're still going to be paying that sales tax. And if we fund Social Security federally through a federal sales tax like this, well, then nobody's going to be not paying their fair share so long as you purchase anything. Um I don't know if that includes food, which I know um sales tax in a lot of states don't, but um I don't know for sure about the specifics of that. Again, he couldn't get into many of the details. But it sounds reasonable to people just at face value, but here's the main problem with it. See, he's proposing a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. He says that social security is in trouble. All the Republicans say this, but guess what? Social security is not in trouble at all. See, Social Security currently is solvent until 2033. And as the clock ticks and it becomes 2016, guess what? Social Security is going to be solvent until. 2034, and so on and so forth. And this is the most conservative estimate on how long Social Security is solvent until. Some reports show that Social Security is actually solvent until 2037, and then after that, it just stops paying 100% of its benefits. It will then be paying 80% of its benefits. So Social Security is not in trouble. So the whole problem in general is that he's trying to fix Social Security, but really wants, what he wants to do is he wants to dip into the cookie jar... <laughs> And he wants to take that money and give it to his donors. That's what this is about. There's no problem with Social Security, don't believe it. So although he didn't have much time to go into the nuances of this proposal, look, he's calling for a flat tax and that's not gonna work. So Mike Huckabee, you're wrong on that. At the GOP debate, Donald Trump angered some of the crowd members when he refused the pledge to not run as a third party candidate. Here's a video.
5: Is there anyone on stage and can I see hands who is unwilling tonight to pledge your support to the eventual nominee of the republican party and pledge to not run an independent campaign against that person. Again, we're looking for you to raise your hand now. Raise your hand now if you won't make that pledge tonight. Mr. Trump. So, Mr. Trump, to be clear, you're standing on a republican primary i fully understand the place where the rnc will give the nominee the nod. i fully understand and that experts say an independent run would almost certainly hand the race over to democrats and likely another clinton you can't say tonight that you can make that pledge i cannot say i have to respect the person that if it's not me the person that wins. If I do win and I'm leading by quite a bit, uh, that's what I want to do. I can totally make that pledge. If I'm the nominee, I will pledge I will <laughs> not run as an independent. But uh and I am discussing it with everybody, but I'm you know talking about a lot of leverage. We wanna win, and we will win. But I want to win as the Republican, I wanna run as the Republican nominee. So cool. tonight well, you can't I mean, say if another one of
3: these this is what's wrong. I mean okay. this is what's wrong. He buys and sells politicians of all stripes. He's already, hey, look, look. He's already hedging his bet on the Clintons. Okay, so if he doesn't run as a Republican, maybe he supports Clinton, or maybe runs as an independent. Okay. But I'd say that he's already hedging his bets because he's used to buying politicians. Well, I've given him plenty of money. Just to be clear, you can't make
5: the. We're gonna, we're going to move on. You're not gonna make the pledge. I will not make the pledge at this time. Okay.
0: Look, say what you will about Donald Trump, but you've got to admit that he's at least pure comedy gold. Now, I like the little exchange that he got into with Rand Paul because Rand said, look, he's used to buying politicians. He buys and sells politicians of all stripes. And when he says of all stripes, what he's saying is that Donald Trump purchases both Democratic and Republican politicians. And that's not too far-fetched. I mean, Donald Trump has even donated to the Clintons, which is why Rand Paul um, referred to him as a Hillary Clinton supporter. And it's not too far off if you do look at his political donations. But my favorite part of the whole thing is when uh, Rand Paul was talking about how Donald Trump always bribes politicians. Trump was like, well, I've already given him plenty of money. Oh, smackdown. (laughs) He laid the smackdown on him. So look, I just want to pose the question to my audience. How awesome would it be for you guys to actually see Donald Trump run as a third-party candidate? I mean, look, the Republicans, they're going to have a really difficult road getting to the White House anyway. (laughs) But, I mean, if Trump runs as a third-party candidate and he doesn't get the nominee, oh my God, it's over. It's over. They have no chances of winning. They could win against anybody. I mean, you could put up Chuck Schumer. You could put up the likes of, uh, um, Alison Grimes. And I think they could probably win in a national presidential election against the Republicans if Donald Trump does this. So look, if he runs as a third party candidate, he's going to be crippling them. Now, do I think it's an inside job that the Democrats kind of set him up to run? No, not at all. I don't, I don't think that's the case. I'm not conspiratorial in that regard. Um, But I do think that he doesn't necessarily have legitimate aspirations to become president. I think he's doing this all for press. I really do. Now, the fact that he's actually polling ahead of everybody, I don't think even he expected that. He didn't expect to come out, say these outlandish things, which he knows are outlandish, and then actually poll ahead in the polls. So that kind of just goes to show you how crazy the Republican base has become. And Donald Trump, keep it up because I love watching it. So there was one thing at the GOP debate in particular that really stood out to me. So when asked what evidence he could provide, I'm referring to Donald Trump, about his claim that Mexico is actually sending people over the border, well, he had this to say. Now I'm going to show you the video and we're going to come back and um, discuss it.
4: Mr. Trump, uh, it has not escaped anybody's notice that you say that the Mexican government, the Mexican government is sending criminals rapists, drug dealers across the border. Governor Bush has called those remarks, quote, extraordinarily ugly. I'd like you, you're right next to him, tell us, talk to him directly and say how you respond to that, and, and, you have repeatedly said that you have evidence that the Mexican government is doing this, but that you have evidence you have refused or declined to share. Why not use this first Republican presidential debate to share your proof with the American people.
5: So, if it weren't for me, you wouldn't even be talking about illegal immigration, Chris. You wouldn't even be talking about it. This was not a subject that was on anybody's mind until I brought it up at my announcement, and I said, Mexico is sending. Except the reporters, because they're a very dishonest lot, generally speaking, in the world of politics. They didn't cover my statement the way I said it. The fact is, since then, many killings, murders, crime, drugs pouring across the border, our money going out and the drugs coming in. And I said, we need to build a wall. And it has to be built quickly. And I don't mind having a big, beautiful door in that wall so that people can come into this country legally. But we need, Jeb, to build a wall.
4: We need to keep illegals out. Uh, Mr. Trump, I'll give you 30 seconds. I'll give you 30 seconds to answer my question, which was, what evidence do you have specific evidence that the mexican government is sending criminals across the border 30 seconds
5: border patrol i was at the border last week border patrol people that I deal with, that I talk to, they say this is what's happening because our leaders are stupid, our politicians are stupid, and the Mexican government is much smarter, much sharper, much more cunning, and they send the bad ones over because they don't want to pay for them, they don't want to take care of them, why should they when the stupid leaders of the United States will do it for them, and that's what's happening whether you like it or not. (laughs)
0: Okay, so what you just saw there was really interesting. Now, look, I'm not going to really get into the absurdity that is Donald Trump's statement because clearly he doesn't have evidence, the evidence that he provided is hearsay, and that doesn't substantiate any of his claims. So I'm going to avoid that because I've already I've already touched on that in other videos. Um, but what I really want to get to is how Fox News all of a sudden cares about facts. Where'd this come from? I mean, you have... An entire political party and a news network that won't even check them when they say absurd things such as racism doesn't exist, white privilege doesn't exist, Um, that the Iranian peace deal is going to make it easier for them to get a nuke. Come on. They've also said that the $15 minimum wage would lead to a loss in jobs when economic studies have proven that that's actually quite the opposite. So... Not only once did he press Donald Trump for facts, but he pressed Donald Trump twice. Now my question is, dude, where were you when your entire party was saying absurd things? I mean, Republicans make things up all the time. Facts are not kind to the Republican Party. Fox News hosts, again, they like to just throw out random things here and there without any evidence, no uh, empirical studies. No scientific data, nothing. They just throw it all out. And they also purport the fact that climate change isn't real. Even though 97-98% to of climate scientists say global warming exists and it is man-made. It's anthropogenic. So I just want to know why all of a sudden do you care about facts, Fox News? I mean, you didn't care before, but I think I know the answer to that question. So when it comes to their own establishment candidates... They're fine with just taking these facts and just throwing them to the side, just kind of putting them on the back burner and saying, look, go ahead and make your claims. We're not going to refute them. We're not going to ask you for evidence since you're part of the establishment. But if somebody else who we don't like, who's an outsider, is going to make a claim like this, we'll ask them for facts. Therein lies the problem with conservatives in general. Their standard of judgment is not applied equally to different cases. They'll take one thing and say, no, you need evidence for that. But then another thing, they'll say... We'll just forget the fact that you just made that up, like the fact that Glenn Beck said that uh, ISIS is setting up camps in Mexico. Absolutely zero evidence of that. What we did find in Mexico was a soccer jersey that many conservatives have thought was a Muslim prayer rug, (laughs) but as you can see, facts aren't necessarily on the side of conservatives and particularly Fox News. So I just think that it's really ironic that all of a sudden, if they're trying to discredit someone, you need the facts. But when we try to discredit Fox News, progressives, that is, well, they'll say, oh, you're, you're just making it up. All the data that you're using is skewed. It's biased. Mm, okay, okay. So look, I just want to say, if you care about facts, be consistent. Don't just ask Donald Trump for facts. Ask Jeb Bush, Scott Walker, everyone else for facts, too because they've also made some claims that are almost equally as absurd as Donald Trump. So, I just wanted to point that out. I thought it was interesting. Megyn Kelly had pressed Donald Trump on the matter of whether or not he was perpetuating the war on women, and here's his answer to that.
1: Mr. Trump, one of the things people love about you is you speak your mind, and you don't use a politician's filter. However, that is not without its downsides, in particular when it comes to women. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. Your Twitter account. Only Rosie O'Donnell. No, it wasn't. Your Twitter account. Thank you. For the record it was well beyond Rosie O'Donnell. Yes,
5: I'm sure it was. Your
1: Twitter account has several disparaging comments about women's looks. You once told a contestant on Celebrity Apprentice it would be a pretty picture to see her on her knees. Does that sound to you like the temperament of a man we should elect as president? And how will you answer the charge from Hillary Clinton, who is likely to be the Democratic nominee, that you are part of the war on women?
5: I think the big problem this country has is being politically correct. I've been cha- I've been challenged by so many people and I don't frankly have time for total political correctness. And to be honest with you, this country doesn't have time either. This country is in big trouble. We don't win anymore. We lose to China. We lose to Mexico both in trade and at the border. We lose to everybody. And frankly, what I say, and oftentimes it's fun, it's kidding, we have a good time, what I say is what I say. And honestly, Megan, if you don't like it, I'm sorry. I've been very nice to you, although I could probably maybe not be based on the way you have treated me, but I wouldn't do that. But you know what? We, we need strength, we need energy, we need quickness and we need brain in this country to turn it around that i can tell you right now
0: so really i mean the first thing that i thought during that video was that i just feel like i'm watching a real life parody (laughs) i mean what do you say about that now when she stated all these things that he had said you called women fat pigs and whatnot he said no just rosie O'Donnell." and then she kind of pressed him more on that she said no i can assure you you've said this about multiple women but then he said I'm sure it was about multiple women. <laughs> okay. So you just concede right then and there. He's like, yeah, I've said horrible things before. It's no surprise. <laughs> oh, Donald Trump. It's hard to break this down because it's so ridiculous. I mean, he's not purporting any type of really substantive policy issues. So really all that we can critique him on at the Humanist Report is the lunacy of his campaign and the things that he says. Now, here's what I want to get into because he says... Um, that he doesn't have time to be politically correct and whatnot, yada, yada, yada. Well, Donald Trump, when you say things like it would be a pretty picture to see a woman on her knees and people get offended, then I've got news for you. They're not just getting overly offended for no reason. They have a perfectly legitimate reason to be offended at something like that because when you make these types of statements, you objectify women and diminish their entire existence. And nobody likes that. Who... Who wants to be diminished down to one thing as a sexual sexual object? Just like you don't want to be diminished into that ridiculous hairpiece thing that you got on your head, that bird's nest. Women don't want to be diminished into just being sexual objects for men. So they're not being overly PC. You're just being a chauvinist. So we later on addressed Megyn Kelly and said, If you don't like it, what can I say? I've been nice to you and I probably don't have to be based on the way that you've treated me, but I wouldn't do that. Now, apparently he changed his mind because he later tweeted, Fox viewers give low marks to bimbo Megan Kelly. We'll consider other programs. He just called Megan Kelly a bimbo. So she... <laughs> I'm laughing because it's ridiculous. I'm not laughing that he called her the name. He basically was just called out for perpetuating a war on women by saying um, women are uh, this and that. And what does he do less than 24 hours later? He then calls the woman who accused him of this nationally in a GOP debate a bimbo. Oh, facepalm, man. I don't know what to say about it. Donald Trump, you're crazy. So he then finished by saying that we need to turn this country around and he listed a bunch of platitudes that made no difference, no substance at all. So the takeaway is that regardless of how much of a joke we all think Donald Trump is, which he is, even the Republican Party thinks is a joke, you can't deny the fact that this is very entertaining. I don't like the fact that he is uh, saying all these horrific things. I think that it's very offensive, but at the same time, though... It's really interesting because you're really seeing the Republican Party scramble because of it. At the GOP debate, Rick Santorum went full crazy.
3: Next question on the U.S. Supreme Court. It's been 42 years, Senator Santorum, since Roe v. Wade, and many consider in this country to be a case of settled law. Recently, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on same-sex marriage. Is that now settled law in America I, today? It is
5: not any more than Dred Scott was settled law to Abraham Lincoln who in his first inaugural address said it won't stand. And they went ahead and passed laws in direct contravention to a rogue Supreme Court. This is a rogue Supreme Court decision, just like Justice Roberts said, there is no constitutional basis for the Supreme Court's decision.
0: He said that marriage equality is settled law as much as Dred Scott was settled law back in 1857. Okay, (laughs) let me remind you what the dred scott case was about so in 1857 dred scott was a freed slave who went to the north and then tried to sue his previous slaveholders and um what happened was the court had held that african americans regardless of their status if they were free or unfree that they could not become american citizens and that dred scott therefore had no legal standing in court That's what the Dred Scott case is about, and Rick Santorum thinks that there's some parallels between the Dred Scott case and the Obergefell case, which is the one that legalized marriage equality. Now, you can't compare marriage equality to the Dred Scott case because they're not the same thing. That's a false equivalence, but of course he's going to do that anyway. And furthermore, the court was wrong in the Dred Scott case because they took rights away. But with respect to the marriage equality case, they're actually extending rights. See, the reason why we didn't like Dred Scott in the first place is because it made citizens less equal. It took rights away from them and made them less free. And the reason why we like the marriage equality case is because it does the opposite of what the Dred Scott case does in effect. What it does is it legalizes marriage equality and makes gay citizens more equal, more free, there's more rights, and collectively, as a result, we're all more free because of this decision. So you can't take these two cases and say, well, we disagreed with Dred Scott, so we can disagree with this case and say it's the same thing, because they're not the same thing. And furthermore, the judges in the Dred Scott case are on the wrong side of history. Now, the judges who voted against marriage equality, such as uh, Justice uh, Thomas, Alito, uh, Scalia, um, Roberts, Well, they're all on the wrong side of history. So they are more akin to the justices in the Dred Scott case who voted on the wrong side of history, but he doesn't realize that. So now he quotes Justice Roberts by saying there's no constitutional basis for same-sex marriages. It is a fact that Justice Roberts was quoted saying that. Now... If there's no constitutional basis for that, I'm going to let you guys decide. I'm going to go ahead and read you the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which was the constitutional basis for marriage equality in all 50 states. It says, quote, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So if you can read that and conclude that gay people are not equal and that they shouldn't have equal marriage rights, well, then you don't have a valid constitutional argument. You're just wrong. And just like Justice Roberts, Rick Santorum is also going to be on the wrong side of history. So this is a false equivalence that he made. And Rick Santorum has proven once again that he's a looney tune. We thought that he was going to try to shift gears in the 2016 election and he was going to try to focus more on blue-collar workers as opposed to social issues such as abortion and uh, same-sex marriage. But as we see, he just can't separate himself from those loony views because he is an extremist. Charles Koch recently compared his network of conservative movements to previous civil rights movements. I'm not making this up. I'll read you his quote. He says, "'History demonstrates that when the American people get motivated by an issue of justice that they believe is just,' extraordinary things can be accomplished. Look at the American Revolution, the anti-slavery movement, the women's suffrage movement, the civil rights movement. All of these struck a moral chord with the American people. They sought to overcome an injustice and we too are seeking to right injustices that are holding our country back. Wow. (sighs) Head just exploded. No longer here. (laughs) He's comparing his network of conservative organizations that want to deregulate everything, he's comparing those to civil rights movements. How deluded are you to even say something like this without at least breaking out into laughter? (laughs) I'm speechless. This is a podcast where I'm supposed to be speaking, but I'm speechless. I don't know what to say. (laughs) I'm done. Bye. We're leaving. That's it. No, um, but seriously, I mean, look, he pledged with his brother to pour almost a billion dollars in the, into the 2016 presidential election. And in effect, the Koch brothers have their own primary, where if the Republican candidates want them to donate to their canta- campaign, well, then they got to participate in the Koch primary, which is what people are calling it. It's an unofficial name, which is very apt. Well, if you want their money, You gotta do what they want. You gotta go to their retreats. You gotta speak at their events. And you gotta appease these corporate idiots. (laughs) So now the Koch brothers are part of the fossil fuel industry. And um, they also have many other types of products and whatnot that they sell. And it's really hard to boycott them for this reason because they have their hands in a billion different cookie jars. Um, Now, look. What they're doing is they're bribing politicians by bankrolling their campaigns, so that way these politicians will deregulate. Now, why do the Koch brothers want deregulation? Well, look, if there's no minimum wage and no labor laws, well, then they can pay their employees pennies and save money. If there's no restrictions on how much pollution you can emit, then they can do as much as they want to destroy the planet just to save a buck. So this is why deregulation is so important to the Koch brothers and other types of corporate um, individuals and billionaires. That's inherently immoral. A lot of people always will tell me, "Look, Mike, this is just because they have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to do this. They're not just evil or maniacal. It's just you know the the incentives that are in place." But I reject that. I reject that because corporations are run by humans. I don't think corporations are humans, but if you look into them, they're run by actual people who have moral codes, presumably, um, who actually have feelings about the planet, and who have families, and have the capacity to love. So I don't buy that, oh, it's just their incentive. So if you're doing something to harm the planet, which only houses about 7 billion people, yeah, you're you're immoral, and I'm not going to just say, oh, no, it's the incentives. No, you're a bad person. Now, look, what he's basically saying is that deregulation is the new civil rights movement. But <laughs> that's absurd. Tell me this. Did any of the previous civil rights movements actually own a political party? Now, I'm not just saying that they um, were able to co-opt support. I'm saying had any previous civil rights movement owned a political party? (laughs) See, the Koch brothers, they literally own the Republican Party. Maybe not 100%, but certainly above 90%. Certainly. If you buy all these politicians then you have unlimited access to them and you can then ask them to do anything you want. Now, look, I really want to put this in perspective for you guys. There's about 536 billionaires that live in the United States and we have a whole Republican Party just tailored to their interests. So the other 320 million, fuck them. We don't care. But we have these 536 people who their interests are more important because they helped me get there. And look, what is the number one goal of all politicians? They want to get elected. They don't care about policy. You want to you wanna support someone who cares about policy? Find an interest group. But politicians, they're about winning. So look, here's the deal. The bottom line is this. We got to get money out of politics. Go to wolf and see how you can help. Because if we don't do this, then people such as the Koch brothers are going to continue to rule our democracy. Look, that's immoral. It's unacceptable. And we can't have it any longer. So I want to take a break from all of this political analysis to just talk about Jon Stewart. So as you all well know, he filmed his last episode on The Daily Show and man, he's leaving a big hole in the media, in political discourse, in our hearts, as corny as it is to say that because I was someone who I didn't necessarily tune in regularly, but I mean, Jon Stewart was always someone who I admired who pretty much anytime I tuned in, I'd be guaranteed to laugh. Now, He refers to himself as a fake newscaster, but in actuality, he's not a fake newscaster. He's more real of a newscaster than any of the mainstream media networks. Um, He's dispelled myths about politicians, um, about political issues. He's called out politicians on their BS. Um, He's actually had an effect on policy at some points when he put pressure on certain issues. Look, even though this is a satirical comedy show and Jon Stewart is just a comedian this is a dude who is doing a better job at being the media than the actual legitimate professional media networks. So it sucks that he's leaving. And look, Trevor Noah has some big shoes to fill, but I think we need to give him a chance. We can't just judge um, what he's going to do on his first episode. we got to give it months because, I mean, look, with shoes that big to fill, that's got to be tough. That's got to be really tough. But getting back to Jon Stewart, I wanted to go over some facts um, to kind of celebrate his awesomeness. I would post the tribute video with my favorite clips, but YouTube's content ID system will freak out and just perma-ban me. <laughs> um, not perma me, but I'll be penalized for it. So I'll just go over some facts from the Huffing- Huffington Post. Um, so first and foremost, his first television appearance was on a children's show called Captain Noah and His Magical Ark in 1971. Uh, He met his wife, Tracy, on a blind date and later proposed to her through a crossword puzzle. Sounds like Jon Stewart. Now, he's actually the one that turned Stephen Colbert onto political satire because Colbert was a comedian for a while, but he wasn't actually interested in political satire until Jon Stewart kind of pushed him in that direction. And I mean... We're thankful that he did that, right? Because Colbert has aw- has been awesome. I mean, the Colbert Report. I was super sad when that ended too. But I'm more sad for The Daily Show. Um, but anyways, for those of you who don't know about his pre-Daily Show acting career, he made appearances in movies such as Half-Baked, Big Daddy with Adam Sandler. I know it's an Adam Sandler movie, but watch it for Jon Stewart, maybe? Um, he also appeared in Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back and was one of the main stars in the movie The Faculty, which... It's terrible in a good way. Pretty much where um, a whole staff of teachers at a school is aliens. <laughs> Watch it. You won't regret it. <laughs> and I think Jon Stewart has even made fun of himself for acting in the show. So John Stewart, I salute you, buddy. Farewell because, I mean, you've done so much for American political discourse. You've done so much to advance the progressive agenda. You've done so much at just breaking down the BS of politicians And he's really paved the way for shows such as The Young Turks, Secular Talk, The David Pakman Show, Humanist Report even, to where we kind of take this model where we look at media clips and we break them down and we say, look, no, this is propaganda, this is doublespeak, this is factually incorrect. So Jon Stewart, you're awesome. Chuck Schumer, the Democratic senator from New York, is going to announce his plan to oppose the Iranian peace deal. Now Huffington Post explains... As the soon-to-be leader of his party in the Senate, Schumer's decision to directly fight President Barack Obama on the biggest foreign policy achievement of his presidency is a bold but not surprising move. Schumer has long been more hawkish on foreign policy than some of his fellow Democrats. In 2002, he voted for the authorization for use of military force in Iraq. In 2006, he backed John Bolton's nomination to serve as George W. Bush's ambassador to the United Nations, reportedly telling a Senate Democratic caucus meeting that a vote against Bolton was a vote against Israel. Bolton is an ardent foe of negotiation with Iran. Now here's his explanation as to why he's going to be opposing the Iranian peace deal. Advocates on both sides have strong cases for their point of view that cannot simply be dismissed. This has made evaluating the agreement a difficult and deliberate endeavor. And after deep study, careful thought, and considerable soul-searching, I have decided I must oppose the agreement and will vote yes on a motion of disapproval. So clearly he's come to this decision by weighing out the pros and cons, by going over the nuances, by reading the deal, right? Well, wrong. See, the Huffington Post explains the New York senator has developed close ties with the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, the influential pro-Israel lobbying group that has pledged over $20 million to kill the nuclear accord. So his donors, who are the pro-Israeli military hawks, are the ones that don't like it, not Chuck Schumer. Well, we don't really know about his stance. So he's not taking this principled position where he's weighed out the pros and cons and he's really just struggled to come up with a decision on it. It's simple. He was bought off. Now, here's the irony about that. If you are pro-Israel and you want to protect Israel, well, then you should favor this deal because, as I've stated a hundred times in the Humanist Report... This is a peace deal. If you read the deal, you can't surmise anything other than it being a peace deal. So if you read the deal, it's at the very beginning, Iran pledges to never pursue a nuclear weapon ever. And also, with how much they're going to be reducing their stockpiles due to this deal, it would take them 10 years to actually build a nuclear weapon, whereas right now, it only take them a year, because right now, they could probably get a nuclear weapon if they wanted to. But as we all know, they don't want one, as Hassan Rouhani has said. He doesn't want a nuclear weapon because he knows that that would pretty much be setting him up as a target for the U.S. to invade their country, as they already want to do, and they've been beating the war drums against Iran for over a decade now. So the deal is about peace. Chuck Schumer is willing to sacrifice peace to appease his donors who are irrational. They want war. So it's simple. Chuck, if you want peace, if you want to protect Israel, but then you got to vote in favor of the Iranian peace deal because that's what it's going to do. It's going to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. Even if they wanted one, this would prevent them from getting it. And look, this isn't based on trust. It's based on verification. The IAEA can go in anytime they want to and inspect their nuclear facilities and ensure that they're not actually trying to build a nuclear bomb. So I don't understand how you would not want this unless you actually want war and unless you're a war hawk. But as he's proven, he is a war hawk. He's not basing this decision on logic or principle. He's basing it on bribery. The Israel lobby, who's very hawkish, well, they paid him off and now he's going to do what they want. It's as simple as that and it really speaks to the fact that our political system has become so corrupt that we really don't even know what any of these politicians believe in anymore. They're going to believe in what their donors tell them to and that's sickening. Joe Siracione penned a fantastic article for Al Jazeera where he analyzed the current nuclear stockpiles of each country, and he came to the conclusion that it's not states such as Iran who want to secure a nuclear weapon that are the biggest threat, but he concluded that it's actually the U.S. and Russia based on how much nuclear weapons we both have. So he states, there are almost 16,000 nuclear weapons in the world today, and the U.S. and Russia possess 94% of them. Worse, 1,800 of these Russian and American weapons sit atop missiles on hair-trigger alert, ready to launch on a few minutes' notice. Few people are even aware of these dangers. Most have forgotten about the weapons. They think the only nuclear threat is the chance that Iran might get a bomb, or that plans are in place that effectively prevent or contain nuclear threats. They are wrong. On any given day, we could wake up to a crisis that threatens our country, our region, our very planet. Now let's just pause for a second. He says most of these weapons sit atop missiles on hair trigger alert. So in a few minutes, we can cause the apocalypse. (sighs) That's, That's insane. So... Currently, only nine countries do contain nuclear stockpiles in their countries. Now of course that includes the US and Russia, uh, but also France, China, Great Britain, Pakistan, India, Israel, and uh, North Korea. Now here's a chart detailing how many each of these um, or how many weapons each of these countries have with North Korea being the least having less than 10. Now the good news is that nuclear stockpiles have actually decreased since the 1980s. Now here's a chart showing that downward trend as well. So, I want to get to more on the article. So, Sirius Leone adds, the world's nuclear weapons are aging. Bombs, like cars, wear out and eventually have to be replaced. We are now in a generational transition when the weapons built during the terrifying Cold War rivalry of the 1980s are ready for retirement. This could be a good time for Russia, the United States, and other nations to close down these obsolete arsenals and save billions of dollars. Instead, the nuclear nations are raiding their treasuries to build an entire new generation of the deadliest weapons ever invented." Now what's astonishing about this is that US nuclear weapons spending alone is estimated to reach 348 billion. That's billion with the B over the next decade while arms control experts estimate that it could reach up to 1 trillion dollars over the next 30 years. Russia is also increasing the role of their nuclear weapons in their military strategy as well. So this makes the conclusion evident I don't care who you are, the United States, Russia, Great Britain, Pakistan. You need to disarm, and you need to disarm right now. Look, we just passed the 70th anniversary of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. And during that time, between 129,000 people to 246,000 plus people were killed. That type of mass-scale devastation of killing... It's unwarranted. I don't care what the circumstance is. So look, there will never, ever, ever be a valid reason to use nuclear weapons. So there's absolutely no reason for any country ever to own them ever again. Now think about this. There's only nine countries that currently have nuclear weapons, but there's so many different types of explosive situations that could potentially come to fruition just between these nine countries. I mean, if you look at Pakistan and India, They've been at odds with each other for a long time. If you look at North Korea and South Korea, well, the North does not like the South, and they're crazy enough to where they could potentially use a weapon on them. These are just some of the potentially explosive situations. Look, no squabble between governments is going to be worth the loss of hundreds of thousands of lives. It's just not acceptable, and it's time that we as a species come together and take a small baby step and say, look, we at least agree that we shouldn't cause the apocalypse based on an argument with another state, right? I mean, we can all agree as human beings we shouldn't push us further towards the apocalypse. I mean, look, we're already destroying the planet. We don't need to actually speed up the process and exacerbate it by launching nuclear weapons against each other, right? I mean, that's logical, right? So look, the bottom line is that we've got to come together. We need nuclear disarmament and no state should ever pursue a nuclear weapon ever again. And the ones who have it. They've got to get well, rid of that's it. that's our show. I want to thank all of my viewers for watching. And I also want to thank all of my new subscribers for subscribing and also welcome you to the channel. We'll be back next week and it'll probably be another show filled with tons of topics that I could barely get to in an hour. So I'll see you guys then.